Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us today on Heritage Events Live. My name is Marie, and it's my pleasure to welcome everyone to today's event, Rapid COVID Tests, A Cure for Lockdowns, A Complement to Vaccines. We have a great panel lined up for you today, and I'm pleased to invite our speakers to join me on screen as I tell you a bit about them. We have Dr. Michael Mina, an epidemiologist and, immuno and an Im excuse me, immunologist who teaches and practices medicine at Harvard. Dr. Paul Romer, Nobel Prize winner, entrepreneur, and professor at New York University. And Doug Badger, a scholar at Heritage which, with over three decades of developing healthcare policy at the highest levels of our nation's government. For months, our nation's response to COVID has largely followed an approach of avoid people, wear a mask if you can't avoid people, and wait for a vaccine. A vaccine is on the way, but it remains months away from being accessible to everyone. Meanwhile, cases, hospitalizations, and deaths continue to rise, and deaths are now at levels that are approximately the same seen as seen in World War II combat deaths. Many jurisdictions are reimposing lockdowns and mandates seen at the start of the outbreak, and they're facing protests from people who resist the disruptions to their lives and livelihoods. So we're here today to discuss, is the current approach to COVID working adequately, adequately to protect lives and livelihoods, or do we need to adjust our strategy? And if we need to adjust our strategy, is there a way to improve the response to the pandemic using tools that Americans will accept? Michael, you have a way to improve and actually transform our response to the virus. Talk to us a bit about what you see is missing and what could change things if it was used instead. Sure, we've put all of our, 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 all of our efforts have so far been mostly directed towards, uh, really towards the vaccine in terms of where most of the money has gone so far, and then towards extraordinarily expensive uh, lockdowns, which are sometimes essential, uh, particularly early on when we didn't have tools to fight this. But since then, we've gotten, we have a lot of tools. One of the most important tools that we have that could actually stop spread of this virus, or at least greatly limit the spread, is, uh, is our rapid tests. These are tests that can be done. I have some right here. These are simple little tests. Inside here is a little piece of paper. Uh, you could build these in the tens of millions every single day. And we could put these in people's hands, in their homes, so that people brush their teeth and take a COVID test. It's private information. It's just the way that we've told people since they were babies that they should keep their health information close, that they, you know, we've essentially trained the US public to, to be individualistic and to want to hold on to their information and not necessarily have other people in their business. And people take to that, and, and rightly so. And so this is a way to give people tools to know if they're infectious so that they can make the right decisions on a daily basis. They could see a negative today, a negative today. Now I'm positive and I can stay inside for the next three or four days until I turn negative again. This is a way that we very rapidly stop transmission, not just here and there, and not give people seven day, 10 day delays before they get a result back, which ultimately become frankly useless PCR tests. This is a tool that gives people immediate feedback 
so that they can do a lot of what they would normally do safely without being part of a bigger problem of transmission without even knowing it. And so these tests can exist today. We just have failed to produce them and put them into the hands. Essentially what we found is uh, we haven't trusted the public with their own data, with their own information. We, we have a tool that can actually give people information about themselves that frankly they're yearning for. We have a lot of people standing in lines for hours and hours and hours waiting for a test that ultimately is useless to give them any information about what they need to know today. And so if we build these tests, and in particular, Congress passes a billion dollars to build these tests uh, specifically for, uh, for this purpose, then we can actually get these out into the hands of all Americans very quickly. Well, set our expectations a bit about this. Um, how, how would it work? Would, would we take a test and stop wearing masks? Are there other things we'd have to keep doing? Yeah, so no, this is the nice thing about this. This takes 30 seconds twice a week. That's it. It takes 30 seconds twice a week. So you have it, you brush your teeth on a Monday and a Friday and you take a test. Um, if we do that, just that much, we can actually stop population transmission. We can get this value of R down below one. But this doesn't mean stop everything else. Whatever you're already doing, keep doing it. There's a, we know that there's a lot of people in parts of the country that choose not to, to physical distance at all choose not to wear masks. Well, these will still help those people. Um, there's a lot of people who do wear masks. These will still help those people. It's a no brainer to get these out. These are, the, the, one of the big concerns about these is that people will use them and then go party. You know, that everyone's gonna go party. Well, not everyone parties all the time. This isn't, this isn't gonna be a license for everyone to just go and party. The same thing was said about HIV. They, they said, if you give people their knowledge of their HIV status, everyone was gonna go have sex. Same thing was said about seatbelts. If you put seatbelts in a car, everyone's gonna drive recklessly. This is an age-old argument that just never holds up. The population benefits are always outweigh those concerns of the fringe effects where you might have more cases. The point is they're really effective. There's been huge uh, concern that they're not accurate. But that was, that was from early when, when people didn't understand how to evaluate these. They were comparing them just to PCR, which is, to, I don't need to go into the technicalities, but these are 99% accurate oftentimes to find people when they're infectious. So they are extremely powerful tools and they just work as very powerful uh, adjuncts to everything else that people are already doing. It's not a, this isn't an or, including vaccines. We're building vaccines, but we can't wait six months or eight months in reality across the US and the world to get everyone vaccinated. We can have these tomorrow if we want to. Well, you've written a bit about how this could actually- If I can just um, respond on, on this, this point. I think it's useful to think of setting a target rate of spread of the virus. So set a target for this reproduction number R or its rate of growth. Then ask if we do more testing, and then we reduce other things that are restricting R to keep R the same, what's the net effect? And, and what the calculations show is that each dollar you spend on test and isolate would let you remove restrictions that are costing us at least 10, maybe as much as $100 in, in wasted output. So the way to think about, well, what else would change? It just pick whatever R you want. Uh, probably one that's well below one, so this we're gonna, on a declining path for the virus. But then as you scale up more testing, 
you can remove all of these extremely costly restrictions on everybody. I think the other thing to keep in mind is, is that the strategy so far has been, let's restrict the activities of everybody because we don't know who's infected. Even though we know that the fraction of the population that's infected is in you know, low single digit percentages at best. Um, now, if you knew who was infected, you could put in restrictions only on the people who are infected, and then you don't have to suffer the enormous costs that we're bearing when everybody has to be restricted. And then that tells you why you want tests. If you just know who's uh, infected, you can focus your efforts on them and get them to stop spreading the virus. You don't have to interfere with the activities of anybody else. And you've both looked at what this could actually do to um, stop the spread in terms of you've made some projections about how quickly we might worry to adopt something like this. Um, I don't want to say get back to a more normal life, but but stop the spread and collapse the virus, the spread of the virus, you actually use the words. Talk, talk to us a bit about that. Well, I, I, as I said, I, I think it's a social choice how quickly we want to stop uh, the, the, the virus. So I think Michael's done some calculations and, and if we went all out to just stop it within four weeks, we could, we could do that. Um, another way would be to accept that it's going to taper off over the next several months, but, um, but under that approach, you could more quickly uh, open up uh, ac activities that are currently restricted. But you pick how quickly you want this thing to go away, then you, you scale up the tests as fast as you can, and you release the other restrictions uh, to keep, keep yourself on, on your target path. Okay, yeah. let's talk about scaling up tests. I'm sorry, go ahead, Michael. The, to your question about how long it would take, so essentially our projections are if you start with a raging epidemic, kind of like where we are right now, um, and uh, but we're not even, but and, and you just get 50% of people to use this. You have a whole half of the population who just flat out refuses. They choose not to listen to their results. They still go out and do everything. They, they, they don't isolate. Um, but you have 50% of people that do choose to follow the results. And if they're positive, they stay in just for a few days even. The nice thing is because people have tests, they can just test until they're negative. And that might just be three or four days. But if we do that alone, we would see an, an almost immediate drop in the effect of R, meaning that we'll go from exponential growth where we are right now in the outbreak to exponential decline. And so within a month, we would start to see enormous gains Instead of going from 100 people to 400 people in a month, we'd go from 100 people to 20. And so we have to look at the, the, the difference, not just from where we are today, but where, what would be the counterfactual? Where would we be if we didn't do it? Or, or in this case, unfortunately, the counterfactual is where would we be if we did do it? Um, you know, and we could be in, a, in an entirely different position had we started this in June, when we first started really talking about it, and you know, there's no time like the present. Every day that goes by that we're not doing it, we're losing ground. And so, but, but sorry, Mike. I mean, you know, I, we were talking about this in March, not just in June. You know, there were people like me and Alan Garber who who identified way back then that we we could do this. And and another way, Marie, to make this clear to people is imagine we could test everybody in the United States today, find out who's infectious and who's not quarantine everybody who's infectious for you know a week five days um, that we could have, we could stop this virus in its tracks within basically a week now in practice you can't test everybody on the same day 
you know, and, and there'll still be some people in circulation. So then you're choosing these paths of decline. But it's important to, to understand that once you know who's infected, it's really not that hard to address this problem. Then you've got to have some surveillance to watch for people bringing it in from other parts of the world where it's still going to be, uh, you know, uh, spreading. But, uh, you know, that that's really an easy problem to manage too. Well, so this is this sounds like a great idea, and you've been talking about it for a while. Um, let's uh, let's jump a little bit ahead where we were going to start to Doug. Um, what is getting in the way of this idea becoming a reality? Well, I think what's what's happened is that policymakers, by and large, have kind of locked themselves into a a, a losing strategy and are having a difficulty seeing that there are maybe alternative approaches. But when you think about what we're seeing right now, we're seeing a surge in cases and deaths, and we're in the midst of the holiday season. So uh, just at the time when you most want people to restrict social interactions, they're most inclined to engage in those social interactions. So what do we see? Well, we see political leaders telling us, don't get together with family and friends for, for the holidays. And then we read stories about governors and mayors and so forth, uh, in fact, violating their, 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 own, uh, their own orders. We also see, and, and this uh, to me is a, is, a, is a very troubling trend, there's it's more or less a subtext, but uh, you know, Mr. Biden said something the other day that really uh, points this up. He said, we're likely to lose another 250,000 people dead between now and January because people aren't paying attention. So we're on sort of a failed policy course on the one side. And on the other side, we're beginning to tell people, well, it's your fault this is happening. So we're really at a, a juncture where it's absolutely essential that we change strategies. And I think the first part of that is it's really necessary for uh, political leaders, as well as public health officials, to begin to acknowledge, okay, guys, this is not working. Are there alternatives? And until we begin to open that mindset, uh, it's gonna be very difficult to get people to change course. Yeah, if I could, if I could just elaborate on that. I mean, there was, there's been a kind of a, some political resistance to more testing, because there was a concern that more confirmed cases would make things look worse. But in addition to that, I think we've had a problem from the academic and policy, academic policy side, whereas as Michael was uh, pointing out, there was a strong tendency to hark back to our experience with AIDS, for example. So we can't have home testing and there's all these risks in having more testing. Um, and we thought back to AIDS, we thought back to other uh, uh, pandemics, and we thought back to a time when we didn't have available these low-cost tests. So I think the academic and policy communities have been too slow to take on board. This was a different virus with a lot more asymptomatic transmission. Um, this is a time in the United States where people are much less hesitant, much less willing to provide contact tracing information. We've got much cheaper tests. And what, what we should have done in the policy side is, okay, with all those changes, what would be the optimal strategy to, to propose today? But in fact, what we got was just this kind of rote, dogmatic reiteration of, of things we had done in the past. Yeah, it's a rote, please. 
that's that's exactly what, what we've seen and and i think it, it it's also been a um this conservatism in terms of there's something about testing where people for some reason we can make vaccines and the fda can say if vaccines are 50 percent effective we'll take them but there's something different about tests for some reason that we have to get by, we have to get past. And that's where people say, if they're not 100%, they're not worth doing. That we keep, we keep looking at this in this strange way that is harping back both to our, pre, our previous uh, attempts to control viruses, which like Paul said, this is a very, very different virus. Contact tracing the, and slow PCR is not for a virus that moves across multiple people within a week. This is an HIV. We can't have a slow response. We have to, we have to have very, very fast uh, turnaround time of tests. And what we've also seen is that we have got to get it out of our mind that this is not a medical problem. This is a population problem, a public health problem, and we only have in this country one lens to look at a test. And this is as a clinical medical device given by a doctor. As far as I know, most people in this country who want to get a COVID test don't need to be seeing a doctor. You know, they just want to know if they're transmitting to their family and friends and loved ones. But we only have one myopic lens to authorize these tests, so it's getting bogged down. And it's causing people to say, wait, if it's not 100% effective, or uh, I should say 100% accurate, then it's not effective. But that is, instead, we're using extraordinarily accurate tests that are completely ineffective. And, you know, Although, it's, it's, Michael, you know, but the strange thing here, is that weirdly people like the CDC and the standard kind of voices and, and public health, they're perfectly happy to recommend um, temperature scans, which are a kind of test, which are much worse than anything we've been talking about. But so there's this kind of almost this theater of some kind of tests, which are okay, that don't work, but yet we're not willing to recommend the, the tests that, that do work. Um, let me let me just say um, it's easy for me outside of public health to kind of complain about them. I think you know Michael's really been kind of courageous as somebody who's got to operate in this environment, who's actually been saying you know we're not doing this this right. So he, he deserves credit for uh, you know really pushing on 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 this. But uh, I think we we can't we can't just let go now because the the viruses are on the horizon because. Uh, one that may take a long, sorry, the vaccines. We can't, it, it may take a long time to get the vaccines uh, in the scale we need and to get people to, to use them. But two, we need to understand what went so badly wrong. Johns Hopkins did this study saying which countries are best prepared to handle a, a pandemic in, in 2019. And they said US was number one, the UK was number two. Um, these two countries have not been in the forefront of experimenting, being adaptive, trying things that would actually actually work. And so we need to understand what went wrong and how do we avoid making this mistake in the future. And that's a good uh, follow-up uh, seminar. <laughs> we, we've heard a good deal about that and particularly um, uh, CDC's failure to adopt uh, real-time data standards that Congress has been mandating since 2006, the testing debacle at the, at the outset. And uh, unfortunately, I think, it, you know, as Michael and Paul point out, uh, a real error that I believe FDA is making right now precisely in being unable to distinguish between a test that's done for clinical diagnostic purposes and a test that's done for screening and surveillance purposes. Uh, they're, they're, again, locked into a very um, narrow mindset. 
Yeah. Our, well, we approved so, this test for a doctor to make a clinical diagnosis. That's yeah. not the question. The question yeah. is, we approve it. Yeah. Yeah. I just kind of pick up on this. Um, there's the, the challenge here is there are really three different use cases for testing. So one is surveillance. That's relatively well understood. And the FDA isn't really impeding that. Um, then there's clinical diagnostics. A bunch of us have been trying to come up with a name for this third case. And I think Michael actually is proposed the best name that I know of, uh, which is public health testing. This is testing where you're protecting the public health. It's not with a view just towards uh, uh, seeing what decisions, clinical treatment decisions you make for this patient, but it's also more active than pure surveillance where you're only collecting research data. So we've, I, I was pushing screening for a while. Um, others have used mass testing. Uh, Atul Gwande proposed assurance testing, but we need to settle on some term. I think public health testing is best. And then once we can name it, we can talk about it and recognize that it's different. And we can, I hope, get the FDA to think about it uh, in a more clear-headed way and make different trade-offs, the appropriate trade-offs when you're protecting public health, which are just different from the trade-offs you make when you're looking at clinical diagnostics. Well, where right. are we exactly? Because the Trump administration took what I consider a positive but baby step in the right direction. They've they say they bought 150, I think, million of a test. What is that test, and why is that not enough? Yeah, so the the that was a great move, and and Admiral uh, Brett Gerard has been um, really pushing. I would say to use those in the most appropriate ways, wanting to set up pilot studies and on on a big scale and things like that. Um, but it, it's not enough tests. But I think that was a good step. They got Abbott to sell them for five dollars, which is a good price point, you know. I'm sure that there was still it could it could come lower still, but you know, 150 million tests. But what we need is to scale that up to have around 10 to 20 or 30 million every single day, and that's where we could actually see tests like this. The inside here is just a simple little paper strip, really be produced. But the 150 million was really a great step to start, and it and it, what it should have done. Uh, is it should have demonstrated just how powerful these can really be. But instead, we saw a lot of pushback, not from the administration, but the pushback was from a lot of experts in medicine. Uh, and I don't want to, you know, put my colleagues down or anything, but but there's this conservativeness uh, in, in medicine, which is like, if it's not perfect, it's not worth doing. And uh, and it really stopped the the utility of these. And frankly, the CDC and others should have given better guidance about how to use these tests. Like we can't have a rapid test like this be confirmed with a five-day turnaround time PCR. We need to do it quicker. We need to have this test confirmed with another rapid test. And simple algorithms that we could have put together through the CDC and the NIH and, and the FDA, but we haven't done that. And so essentially what's happened is uh, despite people like Admiral Gerard really trying. Uh, instead, he's gotten a lot of flack for them not being utilized when uh, when this is a, it needed a, it needed some, some direction, I, I would say from the CDC to really say exactly how they need to be utilized. Instead of having just professional pushback, we should have had the professionals say, this is a great new tool and embrace it and figure out how to use it the best way possible. Instead, it's just been more or less pushed to the side. Uh, meanwhile, it's like a gold mine of testing 
the, especially that particular test is an amazing test. It's, it's almost 100% accurate for infectious people, exactly what we're talking about here. And it's just, uh, it hasn't been well utilized at this point. Yeah, if, if I can just just jump in, um, kind of, I think the one place where there might be a little bit of, well, there's actually two places where Michael and I disagree. One of them he was right about, and I was wrong. I, I argued in the beginning we needed like 20 million tests a day. He did some modeling with some others that suggest we actually may need like twice that, 40 million a day, to really get to once a week kind of testing. And that's the way this process should work. Everybody else, you know, like just kind of made fun of me because they thought it was silly to do 20 million tests a day, but Michael was one of the few people who actually thought about it and said, actually, no, it's not, it, it, it's not enough. Now, but the other place where we disagree is, um, um, I think it's worth pushing on every single kind of test we can get. So there are PCR tests, which are not available as quickly, but right now we're not facing as much resistance from the FDA to scaling out the PCR tests. So if you look at like the University of Illinois, the reason they're open is because they're testing people once a week with uh, a PCR test. And it takes a while to get the sample, get it to the central lab, get the results, notify the, the student. Um, David Leonhardt had something in the New York Times today where he said he went and got tested, and I think he got results within hours, not even 24 hours. So, so the PCR tests could work if that's the only way we can get more testing through the FDA. But the real bottleneck right now is the FDA is forcing these tests, like the Abbott tests, to have a number of restrictions. They're, they're, it's legal to use this test only if a physician prescribes it for somebody who's got symptoms. So you've already lost most of the potential from the test. In addition, the test has got to be administered by a CLIA-waved lab. So CLIA is a, a kind of a clinical uh, kind of uh, licensure or a, a, a regulatory approval that you have to have as a lab to, to give these tests. So we had uh, tests that, that were sent to nursing homes that people in nursing homes uh, felt they couldn't use. Their lawyers told them you're going to be at, at huge legal risk if you do something which is uh, basically violating the, the FD, FDA rules about how to use these. So we could get Abbott or other people to radically scale up the production of those kinds of tests, but we need the FAA to agree that for public health testing, you don't need a doctor's prescription and it doesn't have to be administered uh, by a CLIA waived lab. I, I would, I just want to second uh, that I do not disagree with you, Paul. I think, um, oh, well, well, that's uh, I, fun. Yeah. No, I think that the PCR tests, you know, I, I helped to uh, start up and now help to lead one of the, uh, I think the highest throughput PCR lab in the country at the Broad Institute. And so I, I absolutely, it's, it's what's kept all these New England schools safe. Um, it is, it absolutely has a, a, an advantage, you know, when the turnaround time can be fast. And, and I fully, fully embrace all of the forms of testing, but speed is the number one. If the moment you go to a test that has a, a three-day turnaround time, which is frankly average now, if not on the fast yeah. side for this country, it's a useless test for, for public. Yeah, but, I mean, but that three-day turnaround, that, that's because um, we just haven't created the right incentives. Um, you know, th there's nothing about the technology that forces that, that kind of three-day turnaround. But, um, you know, basically we've got companies making $100 a test, doing test results that are available five days later that are worth nothing. And they're just like, you know, going to the bank on, on this. And, and it's just, this is another failure, I think, on our part, was to spend so much money on, on tests that are useless. And as I think Bill Gates said, if you just said, if we don't get the results within 24 hours, you don't get paid, uh, we would have gotten the results within 24 hours.
think maybe unpack just a little bit for I'm seeing some questions coming in from the audience. Um, for those of us who are getting up to speed on this issue, um, a PCR test versus a versus a screening test. Um, what is it from like a, a your perspective, and then what does it look like to the end person taking that test? Well, just I, to, to be a kind of a you know pedant about the terminology, you ought to think of use cases versus technology. So there's like the PCR technology, or there's the antigen technology. The antigen tests are inherently much faster that you can get the results you know in your hand. You could do them at home. So there's the technological differences, but then there's also the question of what are we using them for. And there could be um, surveillance, just getting data, could be deciding what you should do, what your doctor should tell you to do to protect your health. But we need to use the either the PCR tests or the antigen tests to do public health testing, where the point of the public health testing is to get people out of circulation when they're infectious. And so for people, so from the, the, the user case, you know, it might look like uh, both of them will use a swab, some of them use saliva. That's just the way to get the virus out of the person or the sample out. Uh, the PCR is usually going to be, you'll see it, there's been a lot of confusion because the media and, and other things say, oh, you know, now you can get a, a lab core test at home. That's not an at-home test, that's an at-home sample collection that then you have to, you have to order it, it has to get to your house, you have to mail it back, and then it's still another three days. So it's, as far as I'm concerned, it's a useless public health tool might be a good medical tool if you really want to say, look, I'm isolating or I'm quarantining anyway. I just want to know if my symptoms are because of COVID so that I know for the future uh, that I already had it. Then, then it's a fine medical tool. You can do it on your own. Potentially, you can do it with a medical prescriber. Uh, but, but these tests, I just pulled the plastic off. This is what they look like. It's just this little piece of paper. We could easily make 20, 40 million of these a day, no problem. Um, the the, the the, the thing that will be different is if you're doing one of these tests, then you'll know it because you're using a swab on yourself uh, or somebody right next to you. And then, and then they just put a couple drops on this piece of plastic or on the piece of paper and you get a result in two minutes. So from the user case, it, it opens up so many doorways to make things to, to allow life to start to get some semblance of back to normal. We could actually, you know, this is 99, 98% sensitive to detect infectious cases. Well, let's say everyone was walking into a restaurant, uh, you know, maybe you could actually open up a restaurant safely without, or, or schools, you know, schools are probably more important right now. If we could actually give students these tests, everyone shows up, they, they have it on their desk and homeroom, you'd know in five minutes if there's anyone infectious and you could pull them out of school before they have infected other people that day, or at least before they've infected many other people that day. And so, you know, this is this is how we have to think about public health and these really rapid tests. They open up a new a new set of pathways that we could take to get to get the economy going again, and frankly, ultimately, to stop people from dying. You know, this is this is what we need to be focusing on. Please. So, if I could just pick up on the, like the political dimensions of this. I mean, we live in a democracy. <laughs> the academics have to remember that, and so voters have a say about these things. Voters don't like mandates uh, like stop doing this, stop doing that, do what we tell you, especially when they're you know broadly directed. And in some sense, we know that it's probably poorly targeted. There was uh, the case of some uh, an Orthodox Jewish community, one in New Jersey, one in New York, where they started to get an outbreak. And there was an interesting distinction. New York tried to use 
the standard kind of restrictions, like you can't go to religious services, you can't meet in groups, and it kind of mandates about what people could do. In New Jersey, they made testing available so that people could find out whether or not they were, um, they were infected. And as Michael's been suggesting, if you just let people know without even forcing any mandates on them, they'll tend to do the right thing, which is to go isolate and uh, avoid infecting people they care about. The other thing that is important is, is that there is this, this issue of compensation. Well, if you, if you test somebody, are they gonna go wild you know, if, if they get a negative test? Well, if they're not infectious, it doesn't really matter what they do. But the evidence on college campuses actually shows that the net effect of testing is to make everybody more conservative. Because it isn't just that I get, say, a negative test, but I hear about the other people in my class who did test positive. This is what we saw in, in New Jersey. When people started to see how common the infections were, even if they tested positive, they compensated not by going wild, but by being more careful about, uh, about social distance. So, so I think you know, we should be scaling up, as Michael says, testing as fast as we can, get the information to individuals, and don't worry about this idea of how are we gonna compel people to do something based on test results. If we have to add some incentives to, for example, to, to isolate, uh, we can do that later, but just start by getting the information into the hands of the people who need to make a decision. Yeah, and this is critical. When I spoke earlier about um, how our policy is sort of running into a dead end, um, there are two things about, about rapid testing that, uh, that are important. One is that unlike other sorts of things, mask wearing and, and lockdowns and so forth, they don't seem to be politically and culturally divisive. I mean, we at Heritage have been writing about this for months. We've been appearing on conservative broadcasts and so forth. And I can say 100% of the time, the response is, yeah, of course, that's what we, uh, that's what we should be doing. And the second point, and, and, and Paul touched on this, but I think it, it deserves some elaboration. Our, our policy approach so far has, has, to been, has been to confine people, limit them, and to some extent blame them if, if the number of cases are rising. You people aren't doing uh, what we instructed you to do. What we're talking about here, and I will call them public health testing, I like that. Um, yeah. We're doing public health testing is informing people and empowering them. And to the point about a democracy, this is even something beyond democracy because you know Congress can pass laws that the, the majority of people don't like, or, or certainly a substantial minority. Here you need people's cooperation, not just at the ballot box and their, their endorsement, not just at the ballot box, but as they go about their daily lives. So when you think about how you want to structure a policy that's going to get the kind of behavioral effects that you need in order to suppress the pandemic, the idea of informing and empowering people is so much more compelling and so much more likely to be successful than trying to limit, confine, and, and blame. And, and if I just kind of push that one step further, if we find with purely voluntary measures, we're not getting as much effect as we'd like. There are other ways to go. For example, you could let someone establish that they've tested positive and then have them qualify for wage replacement while they're in quarantine. So the government, we, the taxpayers, basically offer to pay the wages 
of anybody who goes into isolation. That again, isn't, isn't like a stick that you hit people with, but it's a carrot to induce people to, to do, the, uh, do the right thing. Paul, um, elaborate a bit on this. Um, you've come up with some estimates of what it would take to achieve the vision that Michael's been talking about. Share that with us because we are in the middle of Congress considering a uh, so-called relief bill for COVID. It doesn't include anything like this. What money should, what kind of money would it take to achieve this and um, how quickly should it be provided? Yeah, well, so um, Michael may have a better up update on this. I was thinking, you know, months ago, uh, basically a cost per test of about $10. Um, these these antigen tests, in terms of the actual, you know, the the, the unit that you got to give somebody to do the test, these may have a, a cost that's well below that. I, what would you guess, Michael, now, like a couple dollars per yeah, the actual cost of producing this plus the yeah. swab that has to come with it, I would put it under a dollar of true cost and then maybe $1.50 total or something. Yeah. So when I had talked before about $100 billion over about a year to scale up to 20 million tests a day at $10 a test, we can cut that by about a factor of 10 now because we've got these tests that are so much cheaper. And the other thing that's that's very important here is a lot of the cost of the test is the time for the person to do it. I was just corresponding yesterday with Michael about um, a program in Aust Austria where they're making the PCR testing available for free to everybody, but you've got to go to a central location to get a sample collected. And they're finding that they're not getting as many people going to voluntarily get tested because it's a nuisance to go make a special trip someplace. We could get these low cost tests available at home for people. You know, we don't have to spend a lot of money to distribute the tests and, uh, uh, you know, we don't have to take up a lot of people's times to to to, to do the test. So, um, so I think we're, you know, the hundred million a year would have been well worth it. At the the numbers I was looking at back then, I think, you know, a, a tenth of that, ten billion, maybe twenty billion, if we're going to add some subsidies to cover uh, the replacement of wages while people go into isolation. This is the scale we're looking at to do something dramatically better here, and it just it just it just breaks my heart to see us, you know, have the government get into Santa Claus mode, where it's going to, it thinks its job is to collect taxes and then send checks to people. At the, at the scale of like hundreds of billions of dollars. You know, why are we doing that instead of spending 20 or 30 billion on something that would just end this this pandemic? Yeah, we, and if well, that money was available, would we be able to get those tests out? Dr. Michael, yes. Dr. Mina. Yeah. Yeah. So what we really need, so I, I, want to echo what, what Paul just said. And and actually, we need a lot less. We don't need these for a full year. We need this yeah, right now right. for six or seven months. And and like Paul said, it's tenfold lower. You know, this could be the whole program, say 10 billion. What we need right now is one is absolutely, we need Congress to appropriate specifically $1 billion in this next relief bill this week or next week, whenever they try to get it passed specifically for the for the manufacturing capacity of these give each of the companies able to make this a hundred million dollars which is you know for the average person these numbers sound like a lot a billion dollars is one five thousandth of what we've spent already on this virus or what it's cost us it's one one thousandth of what they're about to pass so this is nothing this is and this is a tool that if we get a billion uh, dollars into the manufacturing uh, companies so that each of them get 150 million to scale up. I, I have no, you know, then they can build these at the scale we need within a couple of months. 
And, you know, they can do it on the U.S. government's terms because we've then just given them all of this money, similar to the RADx program. And, you know, this is absolutely doable. And Fauci yesterday just was giving a talk at Harvard and uh, and he said to, you know, he said, you know, we've done things infinitely more difficult than this. This is so simple and it's a billion dollars today plus another 10 billion to 20 billion for the whole program to get the you know we keep mopping up the mess when we just need to go turn off the faucet you know that's it's insane that we're not doing this uh this panel is so amazing they keep addressing your questions as they come in without me asking so um yeah. i i want to turn to, to doug can, you can, I, can I just yeah. add one thing that what what uh, michael was just saying um one there, um, there may be even more room here than we think. Um, there was 25 billion that was allocated for testing in April, and at least nine billion of that has been held back and not spent. The reason the, the Republicans in the in the Senate proposed 25 billion in testing back in in August and September in the negotiations, the White House said, "No, you don't have to propose 25 billion. We've already got this nine billion we didn't spend because it was." I don't know why, but you know, it was allocated in, in, in April, we didn't spend it. So there may be nine billion available for testing that's already been allocated and just hasn't hasn't been spent. So we should nail that down. And we should also find out, um, Mnuchin is proposing this new thing where the government is Santa Claus, uh, but, um, and he's saying partly gonna cover the cost of that by using funds that were allocated but not spent. If he actually cannibalizes the money that was allocated for testing, that hasn't been spent, and then uses that to just mail out checks. This would just be a, beyond the pale in terms of bad policy. We have a regulatory roadblock. We have a uh, cultural roadblock among the physicians that have, have been receiving these tests that we need to overcome. Um, and Doug, anything else that you would put on the table for policymakers as they're thinking about how to achieve the vision that's been outlined today? No, I think, again, it's, it's first of all, recognizing that we're in a losing game right now and we continue to double down on it. We're not going to get, we have not gotten good results. And when I say that, I, I would speak of Europe as well. It's not as though uh, the UK or Italy or Belgium or any or anybody else has exactly found this strategy to have worked. Uh, the first thing we need to get beyond, uh, we need to get a recognition that it's failing, that we need to move in a, a new direction. Secondly, I think, as, as has been pointed out, I think Paul made the, made the point very well, and, and Michael as well, we need to, we need to um, think less about what resources we have to spend in order to mitigate the damage we've done with a policy that hasn't succeeded. Uh, and we need to put some of those resources into a strategy that will succeed, will uh, reduce suffering and death. Uh, it's, that should be goal one of, of, of any public policy. And then the third thing is, is a real change in mindset at the FDA and the public health community. Michael points out some of Dr. Fauci's comments recently have been very, very helpful. Um, and um, we hope that uh, some of his colleagues uh, at, at CDC and the FDA would take them to heart and, and allow these things to go forward. He's in a position of, of great moral leadership and intellectual leadership uh, but he doesn't hold the regulatory power to allow these tests to move into the marketplace. Uh, and that really has to happen. So it's the regulators, it's Congress, and, and it's uh, political leadership uh, to begin to recognize that doing the same thing over and over again 
is going to produce the same results. So we have to try something new. Yeah, if, it, if I could just make a point about the FDA regulation too, I think it'd be very important to distinguish the, what it does with vaccines from what it does with tests. Um, there's an issue here that there's there's a lot of suspicion about vaccinations and a lot of hesitancy, growing hesitancy about our you know traditional very effective method of requiring that kids get vaccinated before they go to school. So if we have a vaccine which then develops a large number of you know very harmful you know side effects and and large could be a small percentage if you're vaccinating you know, hundreds of millions of people. There's good reasons to be very careful about safety on, on the vaccination side. And I'm very worried that we're gonna get to you know, March and we're not gonna have enough vaccines. We're gonna have used up the, the, basically the vaccinations for 100 million people that the government's already purchased. There's not gonna be any more that are yet approved. There's gonna be pressure to then just undermine the FDA oversight about safety. So we gotta be careful on the vaccination side, but on the test side, these tests do not threaten anybody. There's no harm associated with them. So it's just, it's just absurd to be so tight and so careful in the, the, the regulation of these. So when we kind of push the FDA to make sense, we don't wanna just beat up on them and say, stop regulating, but we wanna say, think about the costs and the benefits. On vaccines, it's, uh, it's one set of costs and benefits, on tests, it's completely different. Yeah, it's we, we have a lot of eggs as a, as a nation right now in the vaccine basket. And what I've heard from you today, that that basket is far and away from being widely available to anybody, carry substantial risks. And we have an alternative approach that could really broaden out what we're doing and immediately save lives. Uh, Dr. Mina, do you wanna close us out with one last comment? Yeah, well, I, I was actually just gonna pick up on the vaccine discussion, you know, it's something that people are generally really not wanting to talk about. But you know, one thing about these tests is they are, they're kind of mutation proof, if you will. You know, there's nothing saying, we've never bottlenecked a virus ecologically like we're about to do. And almost all the vaccines that we're producing are essentially identical to each other in terms of the immune response. It takes one virus somewhere out in the world to mutate appropriately around our immune response. You know, I even feel like, you know, I'm gonna get pushback from my colleagues for even bringing it up, but it's a real concern that we, that the virus, these things are tricky and they know how to, they can figure out evolutionarily how to escape the vaccine response. And we don't wanna find ourselves in June finding a whole new clade of virus. We know how quickly it can spread with a virus that's that's not able to, that are that the vaccines don't protect from. And these tests, you know, they, at the very least, we should be doing it at the very least for, for a, a contingency plan. I've never seen a country go to battle without a contingency plan. I've never seen anything won without a contingency plan for the most part, you know, at least nothing important. And so, you know, we need to, there's just so many reasons to do this. And I, I do wanna just push, uh, reemphasize one thing about these tests, which didn't really get, wasn't focused on here, but, the whole benefit of these, not, it's not just the speed, because it's the frequency. And this is where I get a little bit different from the why I've been moving more and more away from the PCR test. And that's just because to realistically do this twice a week, it's just going to be hard for a laboratory-based test. And I think it's fast. These tests must be fast. They mm -hmm. must be frequent. And to do both of those, they must be accessible. And that's why we need them at home. And if you don't have all three of those, it's the testing is just going to be what we're doing already, which is frankly pointless from a public health perspective. 
Well, thank you all to our panelists. Um, quite a conversation. We, you've made the case a policy pivot is needed to end COVID and cure lockdown. We have a better path. The path forward is known and urgent action is, is needed very quickly. Um, so I wanna thank you uh, for sharing your insights and for joining us today. Um, for those of you who, uh, particularly if you're reporters and didn't get your questions completely answered, we have contact information for you here. Um, I want to, uh, to, to share this with you so that we can continue the conversation if necessary. Now, immediately following this event, you're gonna see a survey if you are um, in the audience. We encourage you to fill that out so we can continue to bring you good content like this. Uh, to see the events we have coming out up, check out heritage.org slash events. And again, thank you all and have a great day.